one of the secrets, right? You want me to give away one of the secrets? Okay. I would say that a huge part of my staying power and success is that I have concentrated on my hiring and staff. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff. And today I have as a guest someone that I'm really looking forward to speaking with uh, for a variety of reasons. One, he's a neighbor of ours. And and two, I, I always love to learn more about restaurants that are really institutions in the in the community in which they operate. So let me get right to it and introduce my guest, Chris O'Neill, the owner of O'Neill's Restaurant in Hoboken, which is on the corner of 4th Street and Park Avenue. And he has O'Neill's in Soho, which is at 174 Grand Street. Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Sure, Stephen. So I have a lot of questions that I want to get into about both locations. But before I do that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the restaurant business and just a little bit about your background? Sure, yeah. I... um Grew up in New Jersey, spent some time in San Francisco with friends who uh, were in and around the restaurant business and wine business, and came back as a uh, 22-year-old and bought my first place uh, in Hoboken. Saved some money and, and bought it and opened 37 years ago. And then uh, the New York place followed up about uh, 10 years later, which so. Uh, that's 27 years old, and we've been operating as a, you know, a high-end tavern menu. I used to call it Progressive American, and always let my chefs do whatever they felt they wanted to do creatively, and, and that was within the realm. And some people call it high-end pub food. I think uh, I think it might be a little more, but well, the menu looks great online. The first thing that jumped out to me when I was looking at your social media and and just getting prepared for the interview and something I really loved is you highlight the relationship that a lot of your or some of your long-term customers have to your your establishment. I know that there was a post, this was probably a few weeks, maybe even a month or two back, I've lost track of time, about a couple who had met at O'Neill's and I believe they brought in their children is that connection with the neighborhood something that was important to you from the beginning? I know Hoboken is a great neighborhood and it's a small neighborhood. Or is that something that's evolved over time as you've been you know, in the community for over 37 years? We've always had that. In fact, right after 9-11, we started to keep track because we had a lot of requests from people who lost loved ones in 9-11. And they either met here or got engaged here, or this was their favorite place. And there was a lot of calls. Could we get a menu from whatever year? And one day I came in and there were, I don't know, about 10 manila envelopes piled up to be sent. And I said, what is this? And they said, people are requesting, you know, they basically repeated to me what I just said. 
And I said, oh, well, we have to do something more special and got the local framer involved and started sending out framed menus. And I think we must have sent out almost 100. And it's always been like that. 9-11 itself was a a memorable day in that we really never closed. My attorney at the time had an appointment in the trade center, thankfully got delayed and was in Hoboken and called me just before 11 a.m. and said, how much is a scotch? And I said, I don't care how much you have a scotch. If you want to have a scotch, you know, thank God you're alive. And he said, no, the place is packed. I'm behind your bar and people want drinks. I arrived hours later. And at one point the police came by about two o'clock in the morning and no one had literally left inside and out. And they said, Chris, you have to close it down. And I just turned to them and said, you tell them. I'm not going to, you know, it was a very big day, you know, uh, in that, in that community kind of way where you didn't feel like a restaurant anymore. Mm. Same after Storm Sandy. Yeah. I remember vividly as well, because when 9-11 occurred, we moved to Jersey City in 2004, but we were located for many years from 1987 until 04 on Gansevoort Street in Manhattan. So we were, I don't know, maybe about a mile or so, give or take, from the um, from the towers. And I remember that day as well, and just being in the office and, and, and that whole, because um, we didn't close as well, and even though we were below 14th Street because we were so involved with just doing whatever we could with the mayor's office, they let us operate, and it was a surreal experience, and I think that's extraordinarily powerful that people were requesting those menus. It goes to show you something people talk about, but your story is is about as great an example as I could imagine how integral in the lives of people restaurants are, you know? Yeah, it's always been my argument to, you know, when it perceived value and real value, when, when you're talking especially to politicians or you're lobbying for issues for the industry. Each one of these small restaurants does an awful lot for their communities. Not, you know, I'm not, I can't guarantee all, but weekly we get asked for a donation or sponsorship. And I think that uh, a, a big percentage of us participate that way. Absolutely. The thing is, we should have codified it in some way so we could have a statistic (laughs) occasionally to throw at the politicians, but, uh, you know. Well, I think one of the lessons that the restaurant community has learned from this, and I, I consider myself a part of it, is the independent restaurants really didn't have a singular voice or, or a few voices to speak on their behalf. And so while other participants in sort of the food service industry, the chains and what have you, you know, have lobbyists, the independent restaurants really didn't. And I think that coming out of this, I hope that there's going to be a concerted effort for there to be some entities that speak on behalf of of the industry, because you're absolutely right. The interconnectedness between restaurants and their community is, is almost incalculable. And I think particularly in New York, it was a segment that was really, I, I would even go so far as to say mistreated by those in, in government, as opposed to viewing them as active and good citizens in the community, they were treated, you know, almost as the opposite. So I think your point is extremely well taken. 
I was actually shocked. I was former president of the New Jersey Restaurant Association, very active for 15 years. I was a little shocked myself at the way the industry was uh, treated at the beginning of this crisis. But I, I think a lot of what you just said, I think that I do see some more independent groups representing independent restaurants. I mean, a lot of people, you know, think of restaurants. I mean, some people think of us as the same as McDonald's, but we're not. Our employees per square foot are multiples and multiples of office complexes and every every place else. I mean, the impact of our spaces in the community is tremendous. I think at the last I read, I, like an office tower has one employee for every 220 to 250 square feet. My place in Hoboken is probably, a, you know, active a little over uh, 1,200 square feet and we have 30 employees. So it's, it's a little different. No, you're right. And I actually, I've never even thought of it like that. I think there's going to be a, a sort of counter reaction here, if, if you will, or, or I think coming out of this, and I said this in an earlier interview to, um, I believe it was John Doherty of Blackburn, where I think coming out of this, there's going to be such an enhanced appreciation for independent restaurants and, and all that they do in the community that it's going to be an industry that's gone from having to face sort of the brunt of a lot of these challenges to being put, I would even maybe go so far as to say on a pedestal because I think people are going to really appreciate it. And certainly it's one of the main things that people were missing. But I, I agree with you. One thing I'm curious about. I, I, I would tell you, I think you're right. I th- and. It's also presented some opportunities for the smaller independent restaurants on the cost side. For instance, a growing number of people that I know of are passing along these uh, credit card fees. Just one example that has come out of this COVID experience. And I attended a meeting and, and one person got up and made a presentation and said, everywhere else, every other industry, <laughs> you know, we give away bread and we do all these crazy things that nobody would ever consider doing. But he said, in this case, this has become every year, all of us sit down with these banks and try to negotiate the best, best rate for our businesses. But it's really also for our customers because we just hide these fees and all these attachments to the bill that ends up in the, our customer's hand. And now I see COVID surcharges. I see, I see the pass along of, you know, here's your cash price and here's your credit price. And I just never saw that before COVID. I just. No, you're absolutely right. And actually I, I, I had done a, um, a podcast a few episodes back where I think a lot of lessons that are going to be learned that are, that have been learned over the past several months are going to put independent restaurants in the best position they've ever been in to achieve parity and in some cases superiority to the chains. So for example, something that's becoming more and more affordable by the day is for every restaurant if they so chose to have their own app and in that app, they can put in their own loyalty programs. You can essentially replicate everything that the chains are doing. In the part of America where you and I live, Chris, drive-through uh, is not 
material. You know, that's not a material dynamic to compete with your cuisine or the independence. But being in a place like Hoboken, hypothetically, if you so chose, you have a phenomenal brick-and-mortar restaurant, and in Soho as well, and you've got great customer loyalty, you've got great presence. But now, with the ease of utilizing other tools, if you determined, hypothetically, that there was a certain type of cuisine that wasn't offered in your market, you could prepare that cuisine in your kitchen where your fixed costs are established, put up a virtual menu either on your own website or or the third-party services, and generate additional revenue. So I guess my point is that I completely agree with you. I think a lot of things are going to come out of this, which are going to strengthen the independents and put them on much more solid footing in general and certainly relative to the chains. I think you're absolutely right about apps and social media. These are critically important. And some of us of a certain age have to get over the fact that we were brought up with parents who said, don't toot your own horn. (laughs) And essentially, this is what we need to do. And we need to do it more and more and more. The whole social media, possibly having your own app is going to be part of the future. I still don't understand it myself, but I do recognize that it is virtually free access to your customers. So important to realize you just can't bother your customers. You have to inform them or give them something of value or try to. You know, I'm not an expert on social media, but I I would give you a compliment and it sort of circles back to the beginning of our conversation, which is the thing that stood out at me, and it's why I began the interview with this, was the way that you had conveyed through your your Instagram account the the significance that your uh, restaurant had to your patrons. So I think that's a brilliant way to use social media because what that communicates to people, whether they're customers or soon-to-be customers, is you've communicated in, in the most authentic and clear and transparent manner what your values are. I completely agree with you about social media, and I think, quite honestly, you're probably as good or a better practitioner than anyone else because you're leading with authenticity. I think the people who miss out on the opportunities of social media are the ones who are obviously trying to use it in a purely transactional manner, and it doesn't come off as as real, and it doesn't really convey anything about the brand. You know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, I suppose we could give out some kind of points or something, but like, That seems a little impersonal. I think we can track a little bit more things now with some of the technology we have. Try to steer right into our customer. I still, another COVID issue that came up, Stephen, is that Hoboken, 35 years ago, was either my the age of my waiters or younger sometimes, and I hated as much as they did to see that empty table waiting for that reservation. And I'm a premium casual kind of experience. And I said, you know what? No more reservations. Special days, of course, Mother's Day and New Year's Eve, everybody wants to know they have a table. But what we did was no reservations. And it's never been an issue for us. I have a little bit of a hybrid system where if somebody does call for a reservation because for whatever reason, we have what we call priority seating. And if you are here with your party, then you will move up to the top of the list. But that's it. 
And in COVID, everybody wanted a reservation. And they didn't want to just walk in and maybe have a table, maybe not have a table. So we had to adjust that way as well. I was a little shocked, but I mean, some friends of mine even put time limits on their tables. So. Well, I think it's going to be interesting because I think some of these dy- – I think it's going to give you and other restaurants a further degree of optionality because, like you were saying, you know, if that's something that going into the future and as things open up, you want to keep, great. If it's something that you keep partially or on certain nights, great. I think what you're even speaking to, Chris, which is really interesting and I would love to know more of your insights on is what – reaction or what steps can restaurants take to adapt to and really augment and make better the changes in behavior that they've seen on their customers? In my mind, there's no question that people are very much desirous of going back to restaurants. That to me has been clearly established. I see it throughout my customer base. I saw it in spring and summer and all that. But you know what I'm saying? Like you bring up a great point. What other behaviors have you seen that have come out of this that you think may continue and may create some good possibilities for O'Neill's and, and other independent restaurants? We never did takeout. You literally had to have my personal number or one of my staff's personal number because the on-premise experience was what we concentrated on because of our size. I mean... My kitchen is like an old Greenwich Village kitchen. It's a it's a small kitchen, and everything has its place. And <laughs> you know, when we change a menu item, it has to be thought out. But it's a it's a small kitchen, but a big business in that we always concentrated on the people on premise, and really never went after takeout at all. At all. Never had a delivery service, anything. And we had to adapt and we had to learn how to do that. Now, I don't know whether in a capacity sense, I'm going to be able to do both if we get back to what normal times, but we will see. They all come out at the same time still, (laughs) but now it's two hours earlier. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, Chris, how was the delivery, once you made it available, were you surprised as to the amount of utilization of it that there was? What, what was your reaction once you launched that? I was surprised. Yes, I was. I was I was very surprised. I always, even at the beginning of COVID, I stayed away from it because so many stories that I've read and heard through other restaurateurs on how expensive it was and how they really didn't realize they weren't making money with some of the delivery services. So we looked at it really hard. We were doing our own in-house delivery to Hoboken only. And Hoboken is the type of progressive and contained community that I think as a restaurant community, we can do something internally that is equitable and safe and clean. And I hope to present something to the city council. I mean, even if we can, I'd love to be able to develop a vehicle that the city council would allow to park in the yellow zone for deliveries, a vehicle that doesn't make noise and a vehicle that bounces off of children. 
whatever. <laughs> We're one square mile and we should have that. And we could do that. We we have a hundred places in a one square mile. We should be able to do this. Absolutely. And it, it, I think it would serve the community as opposed to having 15 or 20 delivery services driving around the streets. You know, it, I just think from a quality of life point of view, this, this is something that we can do as a community that has been born out of this time, this COVID time. And I think it might happen. I think it might happen. There's a uh, restaurateur in Jersey City, owner of Ghost Truck Kitchen, who's a friend of mine and was a guest several episodes as well. And they're 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 looking to do something there as well. You know, as you progress, I should put you in touch with him because I think that there's a real opportunity, and I think you're 100 percent right, particularly in a market like Hoboken, which is so concentrated, where the ability to do delivery either in house or part of a cooperative that's run by the restaurant owners themselves could emerge and displace the third-party delivery apps, which do take very substantial fees. And I, I think it's something a lot of people are thinking about, and I think it's going to happen. And when it happens, it's going to be a great thing for a lot of restaurants. And I think Hoboken probably is good of an area to launch something like that in because of the reasons that you you stated. Yeah, I admire some of the big restaurants and how they I presume have a handle on some of these fees that they're paying. Of course, I'm not naive to the fact that the big well-known brands sometimes get these things highly discounted or even for free because everybody knows they have a good operation, (laughs) but you didn't know that they weren't paying for something that somebody's charging you 35% for. So you have to be careful. And so many friends got really behind with this delivery thing. And so it's, I think it's new for everybody. I tested every item on my menu and we don't offer every item for takeout because it doesn't behave well. By the time it gets to the customer, especially through a third party service. I mean, I've ordered myself and I'm sure you have too. And, you know, I'll never yelp or complain, but I mean, I, I've received ice cold pizza and certainly pizza is something that's been in the delivery uh, world in that space way before most other foods. And I was just surprised, but I'm happy being able to serve an area. I don't need to serve the world. Well, that's what's great. But I mean, I think, you know, what I'm hearing as I'm listening to you, because I don't believe it's binary. In other words, the people that were ordering takeout from you once they had the opportunity I don't believe that's going to cannibalize in any way, shape, or form people who come and dine in your restaurant because dining out is a very unique experience that's not going to be disrupted. And particularly for a restaurant like O'Neill's, which is so steeped in tradition, so centered on the customer experience, it's not binary. And I think what I'm hearing, and I'm hearing this from a lot of people, and it makes me very pleased is there's going to be a lot of additional opportunities to generate more revenue coming out of this, provided it's something that restaurateurs want to pursue 
and provided they have the capacity. And I also think restaurateurs are understanding that they're the ones that have the brand. When people get delivery from O'Neill's, it's because they want O'Neill's. It's not because they want Grubhub or Uber Eats. So those middlemen can be displaced very easily. In fact, they desperately need O'Neill's and all the other restaurants. Otherwise, even though they would like to displace the other restaurants and set up their own industrial kitchens, right? And then they make all of the money. But I think what what I'm hearing, and I'm sure you're feeling it, is that now you, you've identified certain opportunities that weren't even on your radar a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that New Jersey as much as New York has explored the ghost kitchen thing, but that's a phenomenon that I knew about for a few years. But now has really taken hold because I always used to see these restaurants on these delivery sites. And I'm like, I just walked past there. I didn't see a restaurant named that. And they were essentially ghost kitchens. They're takeout only. Uh, There is no storefront. There is no brick and mortar that you can walk up to. But I think restaurants like O'Neill's and others that have established brick and mortar brands. So you have the the restaurant and you've been in business for 37 years. You have the ability, perhaps easy. See, for someone like O'Neill's or restaurants with the established brick and mortar, provided they have the capacity in the kitchen and they, they so choose, they can leverage those resources, which are already profitable, and prepare cuisine that fits a need in the market throw that menu up online or virtually. It doesn't take away from what you're doing in the brick and mortar. Whereas restaurants that are exclusively dependent upon delivery and are exclusively ghost kitchens, I think are highly vulnerable to being overly reliant on the delivery companies and ultimately displaced. So I think it's another opportunity because no one can stop you from offering 10 different menus if you want out of the O'Neill's kitchen if you so chose. You know what I mean? It's a great position to be in. Yeah. Uh, Again, I don't know how some places absorb some of these fees, but I definitely understand that a a ghost kitchen without a front of the house and without those kind of expenses might be able to work within that fee system. But I certainly didn't have an extra 35%. Sure. (laughs) Understood. So let me ask you, Chris, I'm curious, because I lived in Tribeca, I lived in the West Village for many years, and then my wife and I, we moved to Tribeca before we moved out of Tribeca. And what is the relationship with the, the neighborhood like in Soho versus Hoboken? Is it, a, is it a very similar dynamic? Is it different? Because I, I know both neighborhoods well, and I'm just very curious, because Soho also is a great old neighborhood that has all kinds of history behind it. But I think there's been a lot more changes, but I'd just love to know your perspective on that, how the restaurant engages with the community in Soho, and if it's in any way differentiated with Hoboken. Soho, you know, I am on the eastern, eastern edge of Soho. The building next to me, when they write about that building and the tenants in it, they call it Soho. I I am on the edge of Chinatown, Little Italy, and Soho. So it has changed. I've tried to bring a little bit of what we do in uh, Hoboken from that community aspect. And we had it before COVID. I don't know what we're going to have coming out of COVID. We just got reopened under 25%. And 
my particular location, my footprint over there is constrained outside from using that streetery concept and building something in the street because I have a no standing any time zone on both sides of my corner. So once they closed that 25% inside, I really couldn't stay open at all. And we're just reopened now a week. I'm offering a wine that's ranked 43 in the top 100 list on Wine Spectator for $20, which is a real value and very difficult to get. We're going to try it in New York as well with the same, actually the same wine that I got from a New York distributor. But it's a, it's a wonderful red to drink with dinner. And for $20, we just thought this is great value. And it's just not as much of a thing. Yet I have friends who have cocktails to go and they're doing really well with it. They said if they didn't have it, they'd be in a different position. So, Yeah, I think it, you're right. There's a great deal of variety. But where I think you're going to be in a great position, you know, because there's been a real pendulum swinging here. But as it swings in the direction that it's going now, I think that the the desire on the part of consumers to go to an establishment like yours is going to be off the charts, I think. Because it, it's what people have been missing. It's, it's people have been missing the connection and the humanity and just those things that they remember. I mean, again, for, for something to be so significant in a person's life that they want to have a menu to remind them of, of that time, that, that's a very, very special experience between a, a consumer and, and, and a business. And so that underlying um, pull is there and it's been suppressed for a long time. And once that suppression is removed, the people that may have been really benefiting from a lot of the delivery stuff or even the cocktails, they may see a little diminution as more attention goes to the dining in experience in establishments such as yours, which is going to be very interesting to see as it plays out. It really, yeah, it really will. I will say that it's a little more stressful on our staff. Some people do resist. You know, if you have to remind somebody to put that mask on, some people resent it now. Again, now we're almost a year into this, so I understand people are just a little worn out, but and I wish they wouldn't take it out on our staff. You know, they're only trying to protect themselves. And of course. Others. So, Chris, this has been an absolute joy, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. I have one question for our listeners. We have a lot of listeners who are in the, the business, and we have many people who listen, who aspire to open up their own restaurant or bar or bakery. And being um, in business, and I would argue more relevant now than, than ever for 37 years is, an, is a literally awesome accomplishment. What one or two things would you suggest someone focus on most intently at the beginning when they open up their own restaurant? Either what should they focus on or what one thing would you suggest they avoid? Just what would be a very powerful fundamental lesson that you'd want to instill in somebody before they begin their journey in this space? One of the secrets, right? You want me to give away one of the secrets? Okay. I would say that a huge part of my staying power and success is that I have concentrated on my hiring and staff. I have 50, approximately 50 people, goes up to 60 maybe in certain times of the year working for me. I can concentrate on them. And 
they, in turn, as I say to them, if, they, if you can concentrate on half as many people of our customers, but I think hiring is the trick. Spend an extra 20 minutes talking to somebody in an interview. These are the people who are going to be talking to your customers when you're out of earshot, and you want to make sure <laughs> that one, that they like people. That's a, the legitimate question to ask. If you forget to ask that question, you you'll, you might be surprised. <laughs> it's everything. I think that the people around you and my friends have proven it time and time again. They said, you know, you can have the greatest food in the world, but if the service and the people are mediocre, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be very difficult to last. That makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I, I've I've often thought of that myself and I've I've had many conversations with restaurateurs who say the same thing. A, a customer will forgive a, a meal or a cocktail that's not up to their standards, but you can have the most exquisite cuisine, but if they have a horrible experience with a waiter or a manager or anybody, it just makes it very difficult for them to come back. And I think your emphasis on people makes all the sense in the world. Very, very significant. I'll tell you one last thing that Joe Baum told me way back. We, we ended up sitting on a panel together, which is crazy when I think about the accomplishments that Joe Baum had in his life. But he was older when I met him. And I had asked him one time, I leaned over to him one time and I said, you know, Joe, I this menu and I'm really proud of it and everything. But all I keep getting is hamburger orders. And he'd look me straight in the eye and he goes, well, then sell them hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> and it just dawned on me, yeah, what am I doing? Why, why am I doing anything but what my customer wants us to do? Play to your strengths. Chris, this was really a pleasure, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And for those people who are going to be in New York or if you're in Hoboken, you really owe it to yourself to go to O'Neill's to experience what it's like to to dine in and to just be in a restaurant that has been around and relevant and vibrant uh, for that long. So this was a real pleasure again, Chris, and I thank you. Thanks, Stephen. It was a pleasure. Have a great day. You too. I really enjoyed that conversation with Chris O'Neill, and I uh, particularly enjoyed his comments about hiring and how important it is. In the hospitality industry, you have to put people first, and that starts with the people that are on your team and that are within your organization. It's a theme that we talk about here a great deal, but people are everything. And if you want to develop a great culture and have a great team, it starts with hiring and retaining and making people feel appreciated. And if you do that, your customers will feel that vibe. And it's extremely important on on every level. So I want to thank Chris for speaking with me. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to the podcast. I love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming. You can email me at stephen at woolcofoods.com. Or you can DM me on Instagram at WolcoFoods. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating or even better if you would give it a review. If you know someone who would enjoy this content, please recommend the podcast to them. But again, thank you, everybody. I love the way that this community continues to evolve. And most importantly, everyone, have an awesome, awesome day. 
Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>